0: would like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3, Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 1 you may scratch your head and say, what does this have to do with Christmas? Well, it does. It does a lot. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord, notice that in particular, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord, Jehovah, saw that he turned aside to see God, Elohim, called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither. Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, Amram, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, And have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land into a good land, and a large, and to a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold... The cry of the children of Israel is, Come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said unto God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Much more could be read, but we'll just leave it at that point. Let's take a moment and ask God to guide us. Our Father, we thank you that we have a Savior who is profoundly mindful of all the challenges and heartaches and sorrows that we face, and one who is not only mindful but active on our behalf, We thank you for that so great salvation that Jesus provided for us that will embrace not only our fleeting life on earth but the wonders of eternity future. Help us this morning as we look at this and other portions of Scripture to see the greatness of that one who was born now roughly 2,000 years ago. Help us to marvel in the greatness of his person and the work that has been accomplished and the work that is being done and will yet be done as time unfolds. And so we ask for the ministry of your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think of Christmas, we usually think of Bethlehem and shepherds and sheep and cattle and a manger and wise men and King Herod and all that goes with this. But the truths of Christmas span all of time. They go back into the depths of eternity. The truths of Christmas really are as profound, as amazing as God is himself. When we consider the events that took place in Bethlehem, those events had been in the mind of God for all of eternity past. Just go back into time and into eternity as far as your mind will allow And there, in the mind of God, was the reality of Bethlehem and all that would take place there. From the earliest dawn of man's fallen history, God has been talking about the coming of the Messiah, going back into Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, promising the seed of the woman, that seed that would bruise the serpent's head, Satan's head, crush his head, and whose heel Would be crushed. He's been talking, God has been talking about the events that transpired in Bethlehem from the very dawn of human fallen history. In the text that we have before us in Exodus chapter 3, the significance of that name, I Am That I Am, is where I get the title for the message this morning. That Jesus, this one who is the I Am, is the ever coming one. And for a few moments, I would like to think about his three comings. The comings that were engaged in prior to Bethlehem. We call them Christophanies or Theophanies. And then there was the coming to Bethlehem. And then what is yet future, his coming again in two parts. Coming to catch away those who've been saved and coming then at his revelation to inaugurate his millennial kingdom. Three comings. For a few moments, I'd like you to go back into the Old Testament with me, and here we see Jesus, the Redeemer, in that burning bush. Now just use a little sanctified imagination and picture a bush. Maybe it was six feet tall. Maybe six feet round. I don't know. And that bush burned with fire. That was not an uncommon thing because in the desert it wasn't uncommon to have spontaneous combustion and suddenly the ground heating up and whatever tinder was there would reach the flashpoint and burst into flames. But it wasn't unusual, it was very unusual, to see a bush, little bits of branches, that instead of turning to ash and falling over and hitting the ground, continued to burn into rage without being consumed. That was very unusual. And Moses turned aside to see this sight. And there in the midst of that bush that was burning with fire, we find the pre-incarnate Jesus standing there. He turned aside to see the bush, but he saw much more than the bush. And what we have in that burning bush is really an Old Testament presentation of the gospel message. We see in that bush the wood the humanity of Jesus. And yet within that burning bush, that burning humanity, we find deity himself prior to the incarnation. We know that within that physical body of Jesus, there was all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we see him here in this gospel presentation with that fire, that wrath of God that did not consume him. He withstood it all. And he did that for us. How thankful we can be for that event. That he bore in his body, as we know so clearly from Isaiah 53, all of that wrath and that judgment, where it pleased the Father to bruise him. Where all of our judgment was laid upon him personally and physically. How do we know that that was Jesus? Jesus. Well, we know that because of what we read in the Gospel of John in the great I Am statements, but none clearer than the one in chapter 8 in verse 58 where Jesus, speaking to his opponents, said, I am. He identified himself with that one who stood in that burning bush back in the days of Moses. And there God spoke to him, spoke his name twice That's a figure of speech that we've mentioned several times in the past. It's a figure of speech called an epizuxis. And the significance of that is that every time God has used that figure of speech, something very, very important has been forthcoming, something new related. So God called Moses, 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 and Moses' response was, Here I am, speak to me. I'm available. And God said to him, contrary to what we've been talking about all week in James 4.8, don't come near to me. Take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. Why could not Moses draw near to the Lord at this point? Well, there were things in his life that needed to be put right. There were things that he needed to know. You see, God had providentially worked in Moses' life that he had had 40 years growing up in Egyptian culture and language and, and education and so on. And then God had sent him not only to the desert, but the text of Scripture says to the backside of the desert, to the isolated part of isolation. And now God was going, and he was there for 40 years. And now there was a third aspect of to Moses' preparation for ministry. Do you know what it was? It was theology class. It really was. It was there that Moses met God face to face. It was there that he learned about God. And he learned about the name of God, the ever-coming one. And it was on that basis of knowing God and what God revealed of himself that Moses was commissioned. It wasn't simply on the basis of human need. Was there a need? Yes. But that that need long existed before Moses was called of God to go and liberate the people of Israel from Egypt. How thankful we can be that that one who stood in that burning bush is the very one who bore in his body your judgment and mine. So that we might be redeemed, you see. As we look at Jesus standing there in that burning bush, we learn of Him as the Redeemer. We could also, just for a moment or two, go over to the Book of Judges, and Chapter Six. Judges, Chapter Six, in verse eleven. Judges six eleven says. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was at Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abizarite, and his son Gideon. His son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord, the same one at the burning bush, the angel of the Lord, appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Verse 14, And the Lord Jehovah looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? Verse 16, And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. Verse 20, And the angel of God said unto him, Take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Without rehearsing all of the story, we know the Israelites had fallen into sin. They were being judged and oppressed, impoverished by the Midianites. And God raised up Gideon. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and commissioned him. Gideon probably didn't know who was speaking to him. And he went and and he got some meat, some sacrifice, and some unleavened cakes and some broth. And he brought it to this one who was speaking to him, commissioning him to deliver Israel from the Midianites. And this one, the angel of the Lord, said, put it on the rock. The angel of the Lord took his staff, his rod, and touched the rock. And suddenly the rock burst into flames and consumed the sacrifice. What I see here in the pre-incarnate Jesus is one who is bringing deliverance. You see, we have a Redeemer who delivers us from the power of Egypt, the picture of the world. We also have a Deliverer that delivers us from our fears, from that which impoverishes and oppresses us. But there's much more to it than that. We also find in the Old Testament that the pre-incarnate Jesus was very active In the life of Joseph, we find Joseph in Genesis chapter 32, and we haven't time to read all of that passage just now, but in Genesis 32, in the context of fear, Jacob was leaving Laban and all of his past there with Laban, and he was coming back, back home, and he knew that Esau was coming to meet him with 400 men, a small army. And he was afraid because he knew that he had cheated Esau. And he was afraid for some repercussions now. And so he had divided up his family. He'd sent gifts on to Esau. And we find him in chapter 32 of Genesis wrestling with God in prayer. He's very concerned for his family, for his own life. Very concerned. And he knows that he's guilty. He deserves. Some kind of reprisal. And then we find later in that same chapter, God coming to wrestle with him. The angel of the Lord wrestled with Jacob all night long. And I've tried to picture in my mind, what what did that look like? There they are on the banks of the Jabbok River. And Jacob is alone, and some guy comes walking along. And I wonder how they got into this wrestling bout. They say, do you want to wrestle? It's kind of an unusual greeting. Maybe, maybe they were just playing arm wrestling and it got a little more intense and full wrestling match. Whatever it was, we don't, we're not told. But he wrestled with God, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus. As the dawn came, that was a long wrestling match too, by the way. As the dawn came, the angel of the Lord said, let me go. Jacob said, no, bless me first. In their wrestling match, Jacob's thigh was touched and his joint put out of joint. And finally, when he was blessed, the angel of the Lord left. You see, Jacob had been a deceiver. That's what his name means. That's what Jacob means. And the angel of the Lord changed his name, changed more than his name, but his name became Israel prince with God. He was reminded that he had power with God. He also was reminded for the rest of his days that his his joint, his leg joint, either his hip or his knee, was put out of joint, and he walked like it. His walk was emblematic of his behavior. You see, having met the pre-incarnate Jesus, Jacob's life, his behavior was transformed. In the pre-incarnate Jesus, we see him standing at the bush, redeeming Israel. We see him meeting with with Gideon, bringing deliverance from that which impoverished him. And then we see him also with Jacob, bringing transformation to his life. That's the business of the incarnate Jesus as well. You might consider with me for a moment his coming to Bethlehem, the second of our three points. His coming to Bethlehem came and can be looked at in three different ways. It was seen biblically, prophetically. It was seen personally. He came himself and it was seen purposefully, prophetically. Christ's coming was promised in the midst of conflict, in the midst of the the garden, the seed of the woman. It was promised that it would be simply the seed of the woman. The term seed is not usually used in a female context, that's a male term. But it was specifically and exclusively the seed of the woman, and there from the very beginning was the promise of the virgin conception and birth of Jesus. You see, the biblical account of the birth of Jesus is totally distinct from pagan mythology. It is totally distinct from the studied unbelief of liberalism in our day. It was a virgin conception and birth, not the romance of the gods or anything like that. We see in in Genesis chapter 49 in verse 10, a great promise was given that the, the scepter would not depart from Israel until Shiloh came. Shiloh means peace bearer. It is a title of Jesus prophetically given to him as the one who would bring peace. And that peace is available today. But one day, it will be global in scope. It was promised in the Garden of Eden. It was promised through Genesis 49.10, the scepter that would come. We find it in, in Numbers 24 and verse 17, where a star would rise out of Jacob, The star, the star, capital S. I'd like you to consider with me too for a moment the passage that was mentioned earlier in in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. What was mentioned earlier is so true that for an unmarried young woman to have a baby is not a sign of anything other than immorality, not a sign to Israel. Unfortunately, it happened all too frequently. But for a young lady who was exactly what the Bible calls her would be a very shocking sign. We do well to look at that, the use of the term that is used and translated as virgin, it means exactly what it says, not simply a young lady of marriageable age. I'd like you to turn with me to Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5, and keep in mind he's writing at about the same era as Isaiah, about 700 years B.C. And we read in Micah 5 in verse 1, and it's verse 2, or we need to look at, but it's verse 1 that is essential here. Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. He hath laid siege against us. They shall smite, and this is the part you might take note of smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. So who was to be smitten? The judge of Israel, no one less than God himself. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he, he, who is he? The judge of Israel. That's why we need to read verse 2 in light of verse 1. Shall he come forth unto me? There are two persons of the Godhead. That is to be ruler in Israel, and that's still future, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That's his eternal generation. His goings forth, that the Father communicates the essence of deity to the subsistence of the Son as a necessary, non-optional act, something that had no beginning and no ending shall he, the judge of Israel, no one less than God himself. He will come forth to me, to the Father. You see, the coming of Jesus was prophesied back in Genesis 3.15, 49.10, Numbers 14.17, Isaiah 7.14, and now here in Micah 5.1 and 2. We had lots of time we could look at Zechariah, chapter 3, where that branch, who was no one less than Jehovah, would come forth to serve. Or in chapter 6, and verse 12, that he would come forth, come forth to build the temple of the Lord. No one less than Jehovah himself. You see, we, we find the coming, the ever-coming one, coming prior to the incarnation, and we see him coming in the incarnation through the means of the virgin birth. We see him coming personally. Galatians 4, verse 4, as we read at the very beginning of our meeting, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. We know from 1 John 4, 14, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He came personally. We know from John 1.14 that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us personally. He came to lighten every man that comes into the world, as we know from John 1.9. He comes prophetically, comes personally, and he comes purposefully. In Matthew 1.21 that we considered earlier that he came to save his people from their sins. That's a good word that's not used very much anymore. He came to save his people, to deliver them from their sin and its consequences in hell. In Luke 2:32, he came to lighten the Gentiles. He came in the same verse to be the glory of Israel, and that too is yet future. He came for the rise and fall of many in Israel. In Luke 2, in verse 34. So he comes prophetically and personally and purposefully to save. So he has come prior to the Incarnation, he has come at the Incarnation, and he is still coming at the Rapture. Just turn with me to First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 51, he says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's got a very profound implication. That's more than what you just hang over a local church nursery door. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That's going to happen one day that our bodies will be transformed, be glorified. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in about half of what it takes you to blink, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality... Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, but the strength of sin is the law. One day Jesus is going to be coming again. And he'll be coming to catch away those who belong to him. I know and you know that not everybody believes that you might just turn over a few more pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I've read, and probably you have too, the writings of men who engage in studied unbelief, denying that there will be such a thing as a secret catching away of believers. We read in, in verse 16... Well, look at verse 15 to get the background. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, so it's authoritative, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, for the Lord himself, himself, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then... We which are alive and remain shall be caught up. That's where we get the the term rapture from. Now, the the English word rapture isn't in the, the Bible, but the Greek word behind it, caught up, is caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Are you ready to meet him in the air? We will one day, ready or not with something more or less important on our agenda, regardless, we will be caught up to meet him in the air. So much more might be said. We might consider that that ends our dispensation, and that begins the final seven years of that dispensation of Mosaic Law, in which there will be no more Holy Spirit baptism, permanent indwelling or sealing with the Spirit, There will be the reinstitution of the Sabbath day and animal sacrifices done, however, in unbelief. And it will, of course, end in judgment. It also reminds us of the fact that he's coming again to the earth, not just in the air and in the clouds, but he's coming to the earth at his revelation. You see, he is the ever-coming one. At his revelation, he will divide between the sheep and the goat nations. What constitutes a sheep nation or a goat nation? The answer is the treatment of Israel. And the the goat nations will be removed, and the sheep nations will go on into the millennial kingdom. The Antichrist and the false prophet will be judged, as we know from Revelation 19 and 20. And he will come again onto the earth as was prophesied back in Zechariah 14. And his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives and he will inaugurate his millennial kingdom. You see, he really is the ever-coming one. Coming in his pre-incarnate appearances, coming at Bethlehem and coming again to rapture those who belong to him and those who will ultimately go on into the millennial kingdom. And for that, we can be enormously thankful. It's with good reason that we may pose the question, what child is this that came to Bethlehem? Let's sing together, what child is this?